Covenant podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Dewey Dovel. And we have the special privilege to talk once again with a returning guest to the Covenant podcast, Dr. Sam Waldron. Many of you know Dr. Waldron. He is the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. He teaches systematic theology and multiple courses on historical theology. And he is one of the pastors of Grace Reformed Baptist Church. So thank you so much for joining the Covenant podcast again today, Dr. Waldron. It's great to be here, Austin. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to talking about this subject with you. Yes, and uh, the subject of our conversation today is Political Revolution in the Reformed Tradition. That is the title of uh, at least one of the newest books that you have uh, had recently come out. And so we want to talk about your book, Political Revolution in the Reformed Tradition. So to get uh, our conversation rolling, in the first chapter of the book, you define political revolution. So um, can you define political revolution to our listeners? And after defining political revolution, can you tell our audience a little bit about what this book is about? Sure. Uh, language like revolution uh, does need to be defined and defined very carefully because uh, it gets all sorts of uh, all sorts of meanings used in different ways and is qualified and and quotation marks are put around it and all of those kind of things. And, uh, and so when I, I, I write a book on political revolution, I really mean the notion that it's right for uh, individuals without political power to take up uh, arms against their, uh, their lawful government. And so uh, when, I, when I talk about political re- revolution, I'm talking about I'm talking about terrorism. I'm talking about armed revolt. I'm not talking about, and this is really important, and one of the things that I think some people might get a wrong impression about, I'm not talking about disobedience. I'm not denying that sometimes, many times, we must obey God rather than man and rather than our political government. I'm talking about a violent or armed revolt or terrorism against the lawful go- against one's lawful government, and uh, and let's see. Uh, uh, the second part of that question, Austin, was: Can you just tell our audience a little bit about what your book then is? What's it, what's about? Yeah. Uh, so my my book is an is an argument that uh, the common notion that there is a revolutionary, uh, that the Reformed tradition uh, from its beginning supports or or provides a theory of just revolution is simply wrong. Uh, That uh, uh, while uh, a revolutionary kind of um, viewpoint did develop, in especially the uh, Presbyterian wing of the Reformed tradition, it did not. Uh, it did not originate with Calvin. And attempts to uh, attribute the origin of that revolutionary tradition to Calvin uh, is is wrong. And so I'm arguing that men like Rutherford 
and Knox uh, in uh, who were key factors, key points in the development of the reformed revolutionary tradition actually departed significantly from Kelvin in their views and that Kelvin himself would not have supported what they said. Now, uh, uh, one could imagine, I suppose, that I wrote this book uh, in the context of the pandemic of the last three years. Fact of the matter is, it's as of my THM thesis that I wrote uh, about 35 years ago. Um, yes, it, we did decide to pursue the uh, publication of it uh, recently because of all the uh, back and forth and up and down discussion with regard to pet the pandemic and the uh, what uh, what obedience uh, what uh, uh, subjection the Christian owes to the government, and I do think it's relevant to those questions, but uh, uh, it was not written in the context of those questions. It was written uh, uh, as a uh, as a, an emerging idea that came to me as I was doing my THM at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary on the subject of uh, social ethics uh, 35 years ago. Well, very good. Dr. Waldron, you briefly alluded to Calvin in your previous response, and I think that's a great segue into our next question regarding the historical critique that you develop in chapter two of the book. The title of that chapter is Calvin Revolution and the Social Contract Theory. And in that chapter on page 19, you write the following. Calvin rejected the distinctive tenets of a social contract theory of the origin of civil government. So for this portion of our conversation, I think there's three key questions that could provide our listeners with some clarity about what you're really going for throughout the book. So let me let me give you those questions in rapid fire order and please feel free to comment as long as you see fitting to do so. Um, the first question, uh, what is the social contract theory? Why did Calvin reject it? And why is it pertinent to the topic of political revolution to note Calvin's uh, opinion on this matter? And third, what form of government did Calvin think would be most ideal? Right. Um, what is the social contract theory? It is, it is the notion that... Uh, Political power is the result of a contract uh, between the people and their rulers, and that the origin of political power comes then from the people uh, and, uh, uh, and not, uh, first of all, from God. Now, there's a Christian version of the social contract theory, which says that God gives power to the people, and then the people give power to their rulers. Calvin rejected uh, both, both forms of that. Calvin thought that it was God who gave power to political rulers. And, and, uh, and so the question is, how is that relevant to the subject revolution? Well, if the social contract theory is correct, then what the people give, the people can take away. And that is uh, essentially a, a, a doctrine of just revolution. Um, if God gives political power, to certain rulers, then the uh, uh, the syllogism will say what God gives only God can take away, and it's not the uh, it's not the privilege or power of the people to take from their rulers the power that God has given them. Uh, 
Um, and the third question was, do we? Yes, sir. Third question. What form of government did Calvin think would be most ideal? Well, it's uh, I like the way you put the question, because I don't think Calvin thought that any form of government, any particular form of government was necessary for it to have for it to have political power. But um, Calvin would have favored neither um, neither uh, pure democracy. He did not like the notion of monarchy either. He uh, would have uh, he would have been uh, he would have preferred a form of representative government or or or, or, or a republic, if you if I can put it that way, in which uh, uh, the representatives of the people uh, held authority and held that authority, however, in in uh, subjection to the law of God. Uh, Calvin was uh, fearful both of authoritarianism on the part of monarchs. He was also he was also keenly concerned about mob rule or or pure democracy. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, I do want to encourage you if you want to learn more about what Doctor writes on um, uh, Calvin and the social contract theory. You can purchase the book and read chapter two of the book. I believe Dr. Waldron also covers this in Historical Theology 3 at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you want to audit the course, you can learn a little bit more about this subject. But we do want to transition here from um, the historical focus to a biblical presentation of this doctrine that you're setting forth in the book. So can you summarize your explanation of the transition uh, from Old Covenant theocracy to New Covenant autocracy? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think bedevils this whole discussion is the failure to distinguish between uh, uh, the Old Testament theocracy and the situation in which we find ourselves now as, as the people of God. And so I take pains to define theocracy uh, in, in the next chapter of the book and uh, walk through uh, what I think are the four key, um, four key aspects of a theocratic government. And, and, and the key point here is that in the Old Testament theocracy, there was a divinely appointed form of government. And, um, and that form of government existed uh, under, uh, uh, and by, 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 only by right of uh, conforming to the, the form of government that God had given Israel. Uh, and one of the implications of that was that in the Old Testament theocracy, there was no separation of church and state. Uh, and that's a key difference between the theocratic government of the Old Testament, which combined political and, and ecclesiastical government in, in one state, with what we now confront in uh, our position in redemptive history. And so I argue that, uh, that the Old Testament theocracy was set up by God and was actually uh, torn down by God as well, that uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the judgment that came upon the Old Testament theocracy through Nebuchadnezzar, God himself was destroying the theocracy. Uh, 
and that uh, um, and that the that the view of redemptive history we ought to have it, it, that it comes to us from Scripture is is that we now uh, do do not have a, a theocratic political government over us as Christians. That there is a distinction now between the Gentile silver governments under which the people of God live. Uh, and uh, when are there secular rulers, and uh, and the uh, and the spiritual government or the ecclesiastical government of the church? Those two are no longer uh, united in a theocratic government; they are separate, and and this lays the foundation for all sorts of important principles. Fundamentally, the separation of church and state uh, that has been uh, a key, and religious liberty that has been a key uh, facet. Of, uh, of Baptist uh, politics and po Baptist political understanding uh, from the origin of particular Reformed Baptist, and, and which uh, grew out of, uh, of the uh, English developments in Puritan congregationalism as well. So, um, so, so those are some of the key points. There was a theocratic form of government. We no longer live under uh, the appointed governments in the world today are Gentile civil governments. And, uh, and that uh, uh, we look forward to uh, the restoration in a, a universalized uh, and uh, uh, form when Jesus returns and a theocratic political theocratic government is restored to the world, but we don't live in that right now. Now, the importance of that is that a lot of the theories of just revolution set up standards for how good, how just, how right uh, political governments can, can be before they actually have civil authority. And, and, uh, and, and, the, and the silly thing about that, uh, and this is part of my thesis, the silly thing about that is that we're setting up we're setting up standards for how how good Gentile civil governments are going to be. Well, of course, uh, we're not saying that Gentile civil governments ought not to be subject to God uh, and his law. We're, I'm just saying that none of them have ever been uh, faithfully and clearly and adequately, if you might put that way, uh, faithful to God and his law, and then making those kind of standards some condition of whether they're going to have or hold or continue to have political authority is a little ridiculous in light of the fact that they're, they're Gentile civil governments, and by definition, not theocratic. Well, Dr. Walder, and everything that you just shared, I think from my own personal um, point of view, I think it gets to the heart of what we've seen throughout American Christianity since COVID-19. We know we've seen over the past two years, a lot of discussion and debate amongst Christians about um, Romans 13 verses one to seven and yeah. how that passage should be applied to our interaction with civil government. So I, I think for our listeners, uh, it would be really clarifying just if you could share from your perspective the best way for Christians to understand that passage. And um, and does that passage prohibit all forms of political revolution? Yeah. Well, what's really crucial, and I think what's missing in a lot of the uh, conversation about Romans 13, is an understanding of the historical background of the passage. Okay. and. Without an understanding of that historical background, 
I think it's going to be subject to being constantly misused and misunderstood. Uh, it's going to be subject to constant abuse. Romans was, of course, written less than 10 years before the outbreak of the Jewish rebellion that left the temple in Jerusalem in ruin, and at least, uh, according to Josephus, a million Jews crucified outside its walls. A tenth of the population of Rome was Jewish. We know from the rest of the epistle to the Romans that a good portion of the church in Rome, um, or I should say the churches in Rome, because the epistle to the Romans wasn't written to one church, but as I think is clear from Romans 16, it was written to a number of local churches in Rome. So seeking of the church in Rome is a little bit uh, anachronistic, I think. Um, at any rate, um, so, so Paul writes this, and it's the, it's the longest, most focused uh, uh, exposition of, of political theology you have any place in the writings of Paul. Paul writes this against that background. We know that, uh, that Jewish Christians in Rome had, uh, had um, views that were influenced more or less by their Jewish uh, backgrounds. Uh, it's clear, I think, that the week that he speaks of in Romans 14 are, are, are Jewish Christians with typical Jewish scruples about days and food. Now, I think it's that same Jewish background that Paul is concerned about when he gives the commands in Romans 13 that every soul should be subject to the political powers, to the, to the powers, as the old King James says, that be. Uh, he is concerned uh, for the, about Christians getting involved, involved in the Jewish political revolution movement, in the Jewish terrorist movement and movement in the Roman Empire. And uh, in fact, that terrorist movement really lurks behind a lot of the pages of the New Testament. Jesus was crucified on the false, on the false accusation that he was a revolutionary. Uh, and throughout the book of Acts, we see passage after passage uh, in which, uh, in which uh, Jewish revolutionary movements are referred to. Uh, and Paul is, in fact, thought to be, when he's standing on the stairway, uh, from at least from uh, the... Uh, fortress down to the temple in Jerusalem, Paul is thought to be the, by the Roman commander, a political terrorist. And he has to disabuse the commander of that. Now, it's that background that Paul is talking about. He is not worried about uh, uh, Christian Jews parking their food carts too close to the highway and getting tickets for them. All right. That's, that's not what he's worried about. What he's worried about is, is them join is, is Christians thinking that they have some sort of obligation to join the Jewish Sikhari and become Jewish assassins. That's what he's worried about, and that's what he's addressing. Now, uh, when you actually look at the language of the passage, then, uh, you'll see that, it, it, that uh, well, what he says has certain implications for uh, our obedience to the civil government. He is not using the language of obedience and disobedience here. The language is of subjection or resistance or revolution. And the language he uses in verse 2 uh, is, is language that can be used of violent revolution, is used of, of violence elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, 
So what Paul is saying is, on the one hand, be subordinate to the civil authorities. And on the other hand, don't, uh, don't take up arms against them. That's, that's the command. And there's a really good reason for that command, given the context there in, in Romans 13. So, uh, uh, and, and this leads, leads to, the, to the next thing that we have to say. Uh, you know, if you, subordination is, uh, that language of subordination is language which means to recognize someone's authority over you. Um, and while you recognizing someone's authority over you does have the implication that you have some obligation to obey them, the language is different than obedience. He's not using the language of Acts 4 and 5 about we must obey God rather than man. He is using the language of, the, of subordination uh, to human authority and the recognition of someone's legitimate authority over you. But the recognition of someone's authority over you does not always mean that you have to obey them. And that's not Paul's point, really, uh, mainly at all. He, he's concerned not about uh, telling, and it's really ridiculous when you think about it, isn't it? He's not, he's not he's concerned to tell Christians that they have to obey every dictate of the Roman government. Good grief. How can Paul be saying something like that? Uh, what he's doing is he's saying, he's saying, recognize their authority. God has put them over you. Rec recognize that they're your political authorities and don't commit revolution against them. Uh, you, you will pay with your lives uh, if, you, if you take up the sword against those to whom God has given the sword. And of course, that leads me to uh, the other thing that is, is, is the plain historical background of Romans 13. It's that when you, ask, when you ask the question, what government is Paul commanding political subjection to here? The answer to that question is that it's the, it's the Roman Empire. Now let's think about that a little bit. Who are the last three emperors that Paul is talking about when he says, let every soul be subject to the higher power? They were Caligula, the monster, uh, Claudius, the clown, and Nero, who, although at this point in his career, isn't uh, uh, burning Christians for, uh, for uh, light in his gardens, will do that one of those days. So uh, one, of, one, of, one, of, one, one of the days is coming. So uh, when, when you have theories of just revolution trying to come to come to Romans 13 and say, well, governments have to have to meet certain standards in order to maintain their political authority. Well, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Roman emperors and 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 or, or, you know, they have to have gotten that authority justly. Well, how did the Roman Empire get authority over the Jews by conquest? Um, and so when you when you and. Uh, and and while, so the, while the Roman Empire did give a rough justice and a, and a kind of, uh, and there was a kind of common grace given to the world by the rough justice and an order that was imposed upon it by the Roman Empire, to, to begin to create theories of, of, uh, of political revolution, of just revolution, that say that governments only retain their authority insofar as 
and as long as they meet certain standards, and then apply that to Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, it, it's just a little bit strange. And, and Paul doesn't really let us do that in the, in the passage as it, as it goes on. Now, all that I've been saying means that if someone reads my book and thinks that I'm, I'm saying, if the government says you have to put a mask on, you have to put a mask on. If the government says you have to stop singing in your worship services, you have to stop singing. If the government says you shan't meet for worship, you got to stop meeting. Anybody who thinks that I'm anywhere near those kind of extremist uh, positions or thinks of this book as a defense of those kind of extremist positions is simply wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, uh, I'm saying that we need to understand that uh, we owe basic subjection to our civil government, but we also have the right as Christians to disobey when they command us to do things that are wrong. Just as a wife owes subjection and subordination to her husband, but she does, uh, but uh, there may be occasions where she has to disobey so Christians with their civil governments. There, I went on for quite a while, but you know, the, the passage, and, and there's so much more that could be said about the way that it's been misused and misunderstood by theories of political revolution. Um, and, uh, um, one of the things I do in my chapter on Romans 13 is, is again, uh, talk about uh, uh, Calvin's view of the chapter. And going back to my, my chapter on Calvin, I show that both in his commentary on Romans 13 and the, and the commentaries on the rest of the Bible and his letters to the French Reform Movement who were under persecution, uh, and in Book 4, Chapter 20 of the Institutes, in all of them, uh, he rejects uh, uh, any idea of political revolution. Uh, so that, that's a little bit of what I'm saying about Romans 13. That is very helpful. So far in our conversation, you've given us um, a definition. You've given us a little bit of a historical examination of this doctrine, you gave us a systematic explanation of it, and now you've given a, given us a exegetical explanation of Romans 13. So we want to move from the exegesis, the history, and the systematizing of this topic to now making some applications. So um, what applications can you make for our listeners in light of this conversation on political revelation, revolution? Why does this doctrine matter so much? Yeah. Or does it matter? It, it, it does matter a great deal. Um, for one thing, we ought to be really careful in our uh, determination to disobey our government, not to allow, and it's a slippery slope, and I see people doing it all the time. We go from disobedience to resistance to revolution, as if those are all the same thing. In the, or the Bible, they are not the same thing at all. Disobedience and revolution are not the same thing. Uh, the, uh, the right to disobey, and if, you, if the government comes at you either to flee or to suffer, it's not the same thing as, as, as the right to meet the police officer at the door with a shotgun and blow his head off. They're not the same thing. And uh, uh, so I think... Eh, 
But what you, what you see happening is that there's this uh, ambivalence and ambiguity about the term resistance. So disobedience become resi becomes resistance, this ambiguous term, and then resistance becomes revolution. That that slope, that that uh, that slide is not biblically justifiable. A disobedience is legitimate. Revolution is not. And violence is not. He who takes the sword will die by the sword. Um, and this is what Romans 13 is teaching. God has given the sword to certain men as civil magistrates, as civil authority. Uh, and until God gives you that sword, you dare not take it up and resist the powers that be in that way with the sword. Amen. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Sam Waldron about his new book, Political Revolution and the Reformed Tradition, a Historical and Biblical Critique. Dr. Waldron, as we prepare to draw our conversation to a close, do you have any final thoughts pertaining to any of the subjects that we've been discussing today? Yeah, uh, I do have uh, one of the things that I did many years ago. And as, as probably was related, the, you know, the pro-life movement was just getting on uh, uh, going in the 80s after the terrible Roe v. Wade decision in 73. And um, I wrote a booklet at that time entitled, We Must Obey God. Uh, that was a, a, addressed uh, to, the, to the somewhat, yeah, difficult subject of Operation Rescue. Some of people listening may know of what Operation Rescue was. Uh, my concern about it was that was bringing people into direct conflict with their civil authorities and leading down the, down the slippery slope to revolution. Um, but in that book, I laid out four principles of, of, uh, that ought to guide Christians with regard to their obedience to the government. And uh, or four, yeah, and then four practical applications. We still have that available. If someone wanted to write the seminary, we can get it to them. Um, but uh, uh, you know, it's it's things like yes, Christians must disobey the government under certain circumstances, um, and they must disobey the government when the government commands them to sin, for instance. But one of the things that often gets said in our day, Dewey, is that the only reason we can disobey the government is if disobeying the if obeying the government will cause us to sin. I don't really think that's quite true. Uh, there is another issue, and I lay it out in the in that in that booklet, and that is you have to deal with the whole issue of jurisdiction here. Uh, God has not vested all human authority in the civil government. God has vested the human, uh, human authority and actually three distinct governments, the family, the church, and the state. And each of those governments is given a different, what we might call jurisdiction or sphere of authority. And, um, and what I try to show in that booklet is there are occasions where uh, if one of those jurisdictions, it could be the church, it could be the family, it could be the state, it is often the state, uh, is exceeding its authority. Now, what if you do? What do you do if if the government, the civil government, is exceeding its authority, but it's not actually commanding you to do anything that's sinful? 
is commanding you to do with regard to stuff that's none of its business in terms of uh, its divinely uh, described and prescribed jurisdiction, but they're not actually asking you to sin. Well, in those cases, it is lawful. Uh, and I think we ought, we can say, well, we, we, uh, we may or, uh, or we may not obey the government in, in those kind of situations. Um, if they're not commanding us to sin, we could obey, do what they're saying, even, even if we don't think they have the jurisdiction to do it. Or we, we might decide that uh, we will not obey because they're exceeding their jurisdiction. And, and so I think that's the second whole thing that has to be explored. And, of course, it's directly relevant to some of the overreaches of civil government that we've seen in the last several years uh, in, in various ways and places. Um, and, and, and frankly, one of the things that has to be taken into account is what are the, what are the consequences of, of, of disobedience? If the consequences uh, of disobedience are, 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 are such that I don't want to run the risk of them, maybe I obey. They're not asking me to sin, even though I don't think they have the jurisdiction to tell me to do something. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I, I seem to, the scriptures seem to teach that I have the right to disobey. And uh, I'm, I'm not sitting if I disobey uh, a, a government, uh, whether a family, family, church, or, or state, that is exceeding its lawful authority. Well, those are all terrific thoughts, Dr. Waldron. And it's been a joy to chat with you today about a very important and a very timely subject that Christians need to think biblically and historically about. So thank you very much for joining us. And to our listeners, we highly recommend that you get your hands on Dr. Waldron's book as soon as you can. And until next time, we want to wish you grace and peace from the Covenant Podcast. God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.